Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 2 The Battle of Moitura. Episode 2 Echter Bresh. The Adventures of Bresh. The Story of Bresh. It wasn't his fault. How could one so noble, so beautiful, have been at fault? He was the golden youth, the beloved one chosen by his mother's people. Oh, how could it all have gone so wrong? How had his golden dreams become so tarnished? He had grown up with his mother's glowing stories. Oh, when you were conceived, she told him proudly, your father prophesied your beauty. Every beautiful thing that is in Ireland, he had promised, both plain and fortress, ale and candle, woman, man and horse, will be judged against you, so that people will say, that is a bresh. So he was special, and his father must have been a king. Uh, but what king? In his growing, his mother had would say no more. Bresh knew that he was destined to become a king himself. And it had come to be, just as he had foreseen, just as his unknown father had foreseen. For when Nuada had been wounded in the great battle with the Febolog, he could no longer stand as chief. It was certain that no blemished man could lead. Well, yes, Dean Keg, the great Dedanon healer, had given Nuada his magnificent silver hand, but it was still a blemish. Bresh had no blemish. Bresh was the image of beautiful perfection. He had every requisite of kingship. He deserved to be a king. And then finally, his mother's people at last had welcomed him as king. His mother had given him land and the Dagda himself had built him a great dune fit for a chieftain. No, he wasn't to blame. He was Yoku Bresh, and he had gathered together a wealth of horses, a richness of cattle. And yet the golden abundance just seemed to flow away from between his fingers, in tribute paid to the enemies of his mother's folk, the others, the Fomoira. He was Bresh the Beautiful, and so the land should have become beautiful. But it was not. In a time of dearth, all must work, even the warriors. And why shouldn't that great oaf of a man, Ogma, collect wood? Why, they called Ogma Sunnyface, yet he was not as fair as Bresh. And the Dagda? Well, if he was such a great builder, why should he not dig ditches? And then they accused him of meanness. Him, Bresh, the beautiful. They'd spoken out against him then, saying that under his rule, knives were not greased and their breaths did not smell of ale. They had tricked him into making false judgments. It was not fair. It was not just. And then finally, they'd sent the poet, Carborough, against him, and the poet had composed a sharp satire against the youth. Without food on a dish, he had spoken the words aloud. Without the milk that feeds the growing calf, without the shelter after dark, in a land where the poets and tellers of tales remain unpaid, Bresh's prosperity no longer exists. Now he, Bresh, was as blemished as Noida. Not in body, maybe, but in reputation, and that was the same. So he had gone complaining to his mother. It was not fair. 
and finally she had given him the ring that had belonged to his father, Elitha, and it fitted him well. And so it was that he found his father's kin, and he delighted in the knowledge that he was of the Fulmore, the enemies of the Dodana. Oh, surely his father would fight for him, his own father. But Elitha had shaken his head, his face full of sadness. If you lost your rule through injustice, he told him, you cannot regain it with another injustice. And he had turned away. His father's people would not follow him. Oh, they would come to battle with the Dodonan before long, that was certain. But it would not be for his sake. He could fight for them, but they would never fight for him. He was blemished forever. And they had turned back to their plans and called upon that ugly, evil-tempered giant of a man, Balor, with his poisoned eye, to be their champion. And now the Fomora hosts were in Ireland, and no more dreadful host ever came to the land, and Bresh was with them, raging with anger and the injustice of his shattered dreams. Oh, he would stand behind Balor and watch him destroy this new golden hero of his mother's people, this Lou who had taken his place. There was a story that this child too was half Fomorian, like himself. But Bresh did not care. He would be there to see Lou suffer blemish, but he, Bresh, vowed to survive to see it. So we've come to the story of Bresh in our retelling of the Cathmagathurid, the Battle of Maitura. And in fact, in the 9th century text that we work from, the conception of Bresh and his rule is part of the title of the tale, so it's clearly very important. So this part is the conception of Bresh, it's, it's referred to as the It is, and, and, the, and the rule of Bresh as well. But uh, we only really touched on his conception um, in your telling of the story. Yeah, his mother mentioned it, she kept going on about it, didn't she? Uh, a bit, yeah. <laughs> but, well, we better tell the story Yeah, we, we better just quickly go through. I really love this story, because you've got Eru, yes, his mother. Who is synonymous with Ireland. Erin is still the name for Ireland. And she's sitting in well somebody's house. We don't know who's. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's called uh, I think Tachmaishkena or something of of that nature. So it's just a named place. And she's sitting by the side of the sea, yes. which is on the edge of the land, at the edge of the sea, and mm. she's looking out to sea. And it's a beautiful day, and like uh, it's very much that sort of young girl musing and sort of staring yes. at the water, and almost becoming mesmerised by it. And suddenly the whole thing becomes sort of super real. Mm. And I bet there's not a girl or a woman listening to this that doesn't know what I'm talking about. That's yeah. Like, it all goes magical and strange and something good is going to happen. Yeah. And the sun's shining on the water and it seems so completely calm. Yeah. And then there's this image of the boat, the silver boat. Yeah, a silver vessel coming out of beyond, out of who knows where. And uh, as it comes closer, she realises that there is a man there. Yeah, but it's also, I love the way it talks about the boat seems large and mm. yet it's not clear to her. Yes, exactly. It's this wonderful, misty, magical thing. Yeah. And it is a magical description. Mm. It's lovely. It is. And, and then I, that's partly um, indicated by the repeated mention of silver and then gold. And yeah. all of these are saying this is very significant, very special um, and there's a great description, in fact, the man that she sees, um, who we will find out later, is Elada, who is a king of the Fomora. Fomorians, exactly. But it's got this great description. I don't know if you want to read us a yeah. bit of that. Then she saw it was a man. This is Elizabeth Gray's translation. Yeah. 
Man of fairest appearance, he had golden yellow hair down to his shoulders, a cloak with bands of thread about it. His shirt had embroidery of gold thread. On his breast was a brooch of gold with the luster of a precious stone in it. Two shining silver spears and in them two smooth riveted shafts of bronze. Five circlets of gold around his neck and a gold hilted sword with inlayings of silver and studs of gold. Sounds a bit of all right, really. <laughs> like he's certainly got the bling. You know, maybe he was Saxon. They love their gold and silver, didn't they? No, no, it's, it's, I wonder about those five circlets of gold, yes. whether it was a, a five woven talk. Yeah, five, some, something like that, certainly. Yeah. It's very high status. Absolutely. That's the important thing. It's yeah. really pushing his status. Yeah. Then when he lands, she's actually... <sighs> <laughs> yeah, she's a little bit kind of wobbly, but I, I love think. The first thing is he says is, uh, how about it? Yeah. Well, actually, what he says is, um, shall I have an hour of lovemaking with you? And she goes, well, I've certainly made no tryst with you. <laughs> In other words, you know, we, we never made an assignation. You know, why should I? Yeah, so, so so how about it? Why should I? Yeah. Mind you, were telling me that, that I've never made a tryst with you isn't really what... It's it's the next bit. Uh, what what uh, Ella the replies is, in Gray's translation, then come without the trysting. Yeah. But in fact, in the language, there's no word to indicate without. So it's more like, you know, I haven't arranged to meet you. And he says, oh, well, come and meet me now then. Yeah, so um, I hadn't thought of it before. Well, think of it now then. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 this idea of the tryst sort yes. of implies that they have been promised to each An other. An arrangement, yeah. There is no arrangement. Yeah. It's just they've bumped into each other and yeah. they go, hmm. Yeah, I like this. So the next bit is they stretch themselves out upon the ground. Or... Yeah, the the, ver- the verb used there is concerned, uh, which kind of means they scatter or they arrange they themselves together. The you know, that's pretty which, good. Which is lovely, yeah. And uh, afterwards, though, it's uh, again this rather sort of she gets up and she begins to weep. Well, it's crying rather than weeping, and that can be crying in terms of, you know... <laughs> Is getting... Talking, okay, or complaining, yeah, you know. okay. She can she complains, yes, that he's just rolled over and lit a cigarette. Well, he's rolled up, he's putting his trousers back on and is you know heading back towards the boat. We don't basically, smoke by the way. <laughs> I do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> look, I keep trying, yeah, I know, I know. But anyway, to get back to our royal pair, Eru and Elida, yeah, he he seems to be getting up to leave, and this naturally. Wait a minute. Yeah. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Look, there's two things that are bothering me here. Yes. One is, um, you know, the fact that you're going away. Yeah. Again, in Grey's translation, it's separating from you. Uh, what's the original language? Because I can only think of my translation now. Yeah, the original language is, I have two things that I should lament, said yes. the woman. Separating from you, however we have met. Now, I'm afraid, you know, Professor Gray, that is a little bit of a euphemism right there. My translation of that line would be, separating from you, however melodious our lovemaking. Or no, it's not lovemaking, it's night watching. Night watching, Which however is, melodious our, our night, night watching. watching. So there's a good phrase. <laughs> yes. All right, I've had a melodious night watch. <laughs> Sorry, I like the idea of a melodious night watch. <laughs> you know, it's already well the lark say sang melodiously. To <laughs> Can you imagine Romeo and Juliet going, yeah. oh, I've had a melodious night watch yeah. with you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it's quite good. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. she has then, and he, he has answered that that is not saying, yeah, it was all right. Did the earth move for you? Yeah. Fine. His answer is, have a ring. Yeah, I'll give you a ring. I'll give you a ring. <laughs> don't no, call me, they, don't, I'll, I'll call, call you. you. But actually, the whole point of the ring is 
absolutely typical in in folkloric terms. It is very folkloric. Yeah, it's it's you know the and it comes up in sort of folklore inspired fiction all the time. Oh, the, you know. he gives her this ring and says, "You must not uh, throw this away or sell it. Part with Keep it for or set, part, by sale part, or gift. Part with it in any way. Mm. You must give it to one whose finger it fits." Yeah. You know, very strange. Yeah. And then that satisfies her, though. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that she says she's satisfied with that answer, but that's certainly that's the only answer that he, that he gives her. And she her, goes, yeah. hang on, there's another thing. Yes. I've got another problem. Is like, um, you never told me your name. <laughs> you remember Nanny Og? Yeah. Always get the, the young man's the name. name and address. Yeah, absolutely. So he finally does that and says, well, in fact, you know, I'm Elida. I am the king of the Fovera. And, you know, so, yeah, he kind of drops that one as a bombshell. And then he has the cheek to tell her that what's more, she's going to conceive a child. Yes, yes. But he does make this wonderful... It's like a prophecy, like a prophecy. or a blessing almost, either. Yeah, oh, that's what we think. That's what it seems like yeah. at the time. Yeah. But I'll read that because mm. uh, it's, it's interesting. Mm. You will bear a son as a result of our meeting. And, and I think this was in the, the story yes, as well. yeah. And let no name be given to him but Hyaku Bresh. Yeah. That is Bresh the Beautiful or Horse the Beautiful. <laughs> well, yeah, Horseman the Beautiful, yeah. Beautiful the Beautiful Horseman, horseman yeah. yeah. And uh, because every beautiful thing that is seen in Ireland, both plain and fortress, ale and candle, wound and man and horse, will be judged uh, in relation to that boy so that people will then say of it, it's a Bresh. Yeah. So in other words, it almost becomes, his name becomes synonymous for, synonymous, synonymous <laughs> for fitness, and fineness, beauty. Beauty, yes, yeah. And ev yeah, everything good and worthy, you know, will be, will be described as Bresh-like. Yeah, exactly. Or just as Bresh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting thing to say mm. and certainly is something to live up to. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it'd be something to live up to at the best of times. And so she goes home and in the Elizabeth Grace straight text says, then she conceived a child, which I think yeah. is a bit odd because I think it would have probably happened by then. Yeah, well, I think it's more, you know, so she con she did conceive a child as a result of that. Yeah. You know. And uh, But then the child is born and mm. sure enough, in true folktale type, mm. he grows superhuman strength and yeah. speed. He basically grows twice as fast as, as any other child, yeah, just as like Cabullan and Fiona. Exactly, yeah, they all do. It's kind of it's it's very much marking him and setting him up to be a hero. Yeah, yeah, it really is a fairy tale, a typical fairy tale meeting. Yeah, whether it's um, you know a princess and her other world demon fairy lover whatever you mm. know or, or the prince it's prince charming it's absolutely straight yeah. on and it's interesting i mean it's not just in folklore you can go right back to classical mythology mm. the leaving of the ring i mean it's um jason and the you know the sandal or yeah. or, or um, theseus and how he lifts the stone yeah and his father has left him gifts under a stone and if he's strong enough to lift it he can then have them and go mm. find his father yeah and uh, but his mother's not allowed to say anything until yeah. he's old enough to actually take to earn the challenge it. Yeah. To earn it and i think again don't say anything to your son until yes. he's big enough to wear the ring yeah yeah um but it's, it does have a, almost a smack of sing, Cinderella about it, well, even. I suppose there is a certain you know, it's sort of the rings and shoes. Well, the, the, you know, this ring to who, whomever it shall fit is a bit like the slipper. And, you know, they both are... <laughs> he turns up and I can see I can see uh, Bresh turning up in a glass slipper. Yes, yeah. Well, so, they're, they're both things that you can put other things into yeah, or through. It, it's yeah. symbolically yes. correct. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's some interesting things in it. I mean, if you go through them, I mean, one, he knows, she knows who the father is, but she's not going to tell us. Yeah. 
We've talked about the significance of the ring, but you were saying that in a way it demonstrates his fitness, doesn't it? Yeah, because one of the, despite all the talk about how democratic early Irish society was, you still had to have a family relationship to the king in order to then take the kingship yourself. So you had to be at the utmost, you had to be a grandchild of, mm. a, of a previous king. And so we would assume that the ring also stands for, you know, this demonstrates you're my family. You know, mm-hmm. so it, by leaving the ring for his son, even though he himself was well, not going to be there, ring, isn't it? it is. It, yeah, it's, it's the family crest. You know, yeah. so it says that okay, you are eligible to be king or fit to be king because you're part of a, a royal family. So when he knows that there's something special about yeah. it, he just doesn't know quite where it comes yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. And then of course, this thing about meeting completely by accident. Yeah, is it or is it is or is it is it by accident again? It's sort of well, his or hers. Yeah, whose design is it? Yeah, you know? well, I get the feeling it's probably his design. Uh, yeah, and I think we'll we'll, we'll come to that come later. back to that a bit later because it does seem as though you know they wanted or Ella they wanted to have a miraculous child of his own. You know, and of course then you've got the superhero growth. which yes. he has to have. Yeah, yeah. So that basically is the conception of Bresh. So yes. we've set up our hero for this yeah. part of the story. And uh, we don't know why, but this, this one has to be special in some way. Yes. You know, this has been All set the up. indicators say special, special, special. Well, let's look at the participants. I mean, mm. you know, what you, we always do, we go back and look at their names. It's like getting the little pieces of pottery and seeing if we can date them. Really. Yes. <laughs> it's the only way of seeing if we can actually sort of set it pin in time, down pin, pin it down in the yeah, story. Yeah. So Eru. Eru, as I said already, is, is you know more than synonymous with the land of Ireland. Um, it would seem in terms of meaning, it's hard to get at because obviously there would be a lot of influence. Ireland has always been, or you know, long, long into our written history, has been called Eru or mm. Eru, or Eru, the land of Eru, mm. which is Erin. Um, and even though, you know, there is mythology about how uh, Ireland will also be known as Fothala and Banva. She's one of three sisters. Yeah, in, in one story. Yeah, she's one, one of three story. sisters and the other two are Fothala and Banva and that Ireland will be known by all those names. In fact, in historical terms and in all of our stories and all of our texts, it's yeah. pr- she's pretty much always called Eru. And she was the... Daughter of one of those important ancestor figures too, wasn't she? Yes, she's called um, Ingen Delvoith. And uh, Delvoith, which seems to mean kind of form of fire or shape of fire, mm-hmm. um, is, yeah, is everybody's ancestor really. You know, even the Dagda, I think at one point, is called, uh, you know, Mac Delvoith. He's one of the great daddy figures. Absolutely, Brandon. yeah. Definitely seems to be one of the great ancestor. Definitely, yeah. Uh, on both sides. Yes, exactly. As we'll come to. Yeah. Elitha. Uh, Elitha um, is a word that is usually translated as science. It's interesting that, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked before and often about how central, you know, knowledge Making, and craft. learning and crafting These are the is. people of craft. Exactly. And here we have one of the Fomora, who's also a people of, you know, it's that same quality yeah, in the name. Exactly. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's difficult to know whether it's science as in, you know, an, an art, you know, so the art or the science of doing or making something, or whether it's slightly more kind of theoretical. But whereas I can make that distinction between Fis and Olus, where Fis is more intellectual and Olus is more experiential, I'm not sure where Elida fits on that scale. But mm-hmm. so hence it's it's usually translated well, you can as have science. theoretical and practical science. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then of course we've got Bresh himself. Now Bresh himself, this is a little bit surprising, I think, because 
certainly in later language... He's always Bresh the Beautiful. Yes, they? but in later language they did seem to use the word Bresh to mean beautiful. Hmm. But I think that's under influence from this story. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you go back to it, the underlying me. meaning um, is about struggle and effort, but also, I think more significantly, uproar and a kind of a chaotic noise is very much at the root. Like a sort of um, showing off, uh, boasting, what do you call it? Well, the boasting is, I think that's a bit of a play on words in this, because there is a term brass, which is about kind of empty boasts. Well, that's like brass yeah, in English. Sounding brass, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that within this tale, there's a bit of a play on that yeah, as a yeah. word, because all of this, you know, what Elida is doing turns out to be a bit of an empty boast. So I think there's a bit of a word play going on there. But Bresh itself has more to do with kind of clamour and uproar, yeah. you know, and in a way... There is also kind of struggle and effort in there, but it's definitely got that chaotic sense. Not what to you it. expect, isn't it? No, it's and not. And then, of course, the first half of it, the yahoo, yahoo, which again, we've got loads of particularly Kiko. kings are yahoo Why are they or yahoo horse. Exactly. <laughs> and I noticed that every man, woman, and, and horse. horse. Well, exactly. But I mean, horse. Uh, any in lots of societies, horses are very much status symbols. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly in in Ireland, it's definitely marks you out for a nobility and I mean this mm-hmm. this is um, a steed eh, as opposed to a workhorse a cabal yeah, you know yeah, yeah. so um, you're talking about you know a thoroughbred basically yeah. and it's quite true that when we were looking at uh, Macha earlier yes. on, the, the, the idea that the highest status places that you know you could clear land pasture. you could clear land for crops you could clear land for cattle but you were really there when you cleared land for horses. Exactly. Yeah. They're, so they're the, almost like luxury goods, yeah, if you the, like. The, they're, they're sports clearing, cars. The horse car. Horse car. Thank you. <laughs> the sort of horse clearings. If you cleared for a horse, yeah. that was the royalty status. Absolutely. Which is why Owen Mucker is so, you know, it, it's, it's a royal seat. A royal yeah. seat. yeah. Exactly. Uh, but it just amuses me that every time I come across a name, oh, yeah. he's another horse. I know, there's, there is loads of them, and that's why they always have to be specified that he's Yoko yeah. Bresh, as opposed to uh, the Dagda, who's known as Yoko the Olather, you know. So, so it's like a noble name. It really. is, yeah. Almost, or almost like a, a symbol of, no- yeah, a, a, of nobility. A, a epithet of nobility. Yeah. There is the other story, I mean, the other hero we're going to be hearing about, Lou, and his conception of birth, and he has this miraculous conception of birth as yes. well. In fact, we dealt with this quite a lot in podcast episode three, which in was the, the mythical Ethelin. women series. Yeah. yeah, the stories of Ethelin. Yeah, but uh, I've, you know, in that one, he has a folktale birth. And yeah. I mean, Ethelin is supposed to be in the top of a tower of glass, and the baby's thrown into the sea. And in some versions, there's three babies and. Oh, yeah, it all gets very complicated. <laughs> there is one main difference, though, isn't there? In... Yeah, the the principal difference is that in in the folktale version, which there isn't any reference to in our text, um, Cian comes to Ethlu kind of by stealth, effectively, oh, by magic, yeah, and by magic. But in our text, right at the you know very beginning, there's talk of how when the two a day first came to Ireland, they made an alliance with the Fomorians, mm-hmm. and as part of that alliance, Cian is given to Ethlu in marriage. And I think it's actually told that way round because the Daedanon gave Cian yeah. to the Fomorian Ethlu. So the, the in male order... is being given to the yeah. female, not it, the other way round. Because the Fomorians were the ones who were already here, yeah, and so that cements the newcomers. 
alliance. And it is very odd, isn't it, this idea that the Fomorians are not outside, they're not coming from outside, no. they're already here. Exactly, yeah. And in yeah. many ways, the two a day are the outsiders. And you were telling me, weren't you, that that, that that is actually possibly the original beginning of the story. Yeah, uh, at the opening sections, which we talked about when we were looking at Noida's story. And the four cities and all the rest of All them. that stuff with the four cities and the stuff with the treasures, mm. even though the treasures are, you know, central part of the mythology. But the language in the ninth century text is taken almost word for word from the Levergavala, the Book of Invasions. Mm. And the, the language is later mm. than, you know, language of, if you like, the main body of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in fact, if you were to kind of take out, just literally cut all the um, Middle That's Irish, yeah. yeah, then the very first section you would get is about the two a day and the Fomorians make an alliance and Cian is given to Eslu in marriage. Yeah, that would yeah. be the beginning of our tale. So again, you've got heroes have to have folk tale, they've got to have heroic births, yes. conceptions, they've got to have all this magic around them. Yes. So this tends to accrue to any hero, doesn't it? Exactly. But in our text, we don't hear about the birth of Lou. We're not yeah. told about any miraculous birth of Lou. We do hear about the birth of Resh. Yeah. Well, look, we'll be focusing on Lou, I think, in the next podcast, the next episode. But what I want to know, what we ought to talk about is who, where and what are the Fomora? I mean, they're sometimes described as monsters or huge or um, one arm, one leg, one, one eye. eye one yeah. there, for instance, there's supposed to be one called uh, somebody the footless. It's Ken Hoss, yeah. Oh, God, that, that horrible. Let alone Balor with his poisonous eye and yeah. the, 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 the cat, you know, his wife who's this great giant. Yeah. They're more like fairy tale ogres than anything else. So yeah. where does this monster idea, which is obviously doesn't fit well with Elaha or Etlu. No. Or all the or Bresh. Or, or even Bresh, yeah. All these every everyone that gets described in this text is always beautiful. Yeah, with the with that single exception. Of Balor. Yeah. So where does this monster idea come from? Well, I think it largely comes from uh, the sort of the Book of Invasions, the Levergavola mm-hmm. onwards and onwards into folk tradition. Um, but of course, the Levergavola is a much later text than what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very solidly medieval, Middle yeah. Irish, going into early modern Irish even. And um, at that time, uh, there was a few kind of philosophical projects happening yeah. uh, in the schools of learning. One of them was an attempt to link in the biblical record of the history of humanity uh, with the native, native tradition. And so they're trying to tie up the you know the genealogies so of they the, all tie in with various with the Bible, Bible yeah, so exactly. So begat by somebody else. Yeah, it always goes back to Noah or one of the sons yeah. of Noah, you know. Um, and so that's, that was a very deliberate project of the time. They're also trying to fit in these mythological figures and races with uh, what was by then a firmly established cri- Christian cosmology. Of course, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we find this with the two of the Danon as well. This is the point that they start to become fairies. Exactly, yeah. yeah. When they start to move into the hollow hills yes. and become not tiny little fairies, we no. need to add, but these um, shining figures that live under the ground, the spirits. Yeah, and, and there, there's quite a lot of, you can see a difficulty or an attempt to try and fit them into some framework. There's a lot of very serious discussion about it, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, they but whether, up, are they demons? Are, are they, they fallen angels? Yeah. I mean, it mostly ends up that um, when Lucifer fell, uh, some of them didn't quite fall enough yes. or weren't quite bad enough <laughs> and landed on the earth with a yeah. bump. 
Yeah, exactly. And they got stuck here. Yeah. And although they can't die, mm. they won't go to heaven. Yes, or to hell. Really. Or to hell either. Yeah, they're very much the in-betweens. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, a bit bit like Tolkien's elves. Yeah, know. very much. Very you know, much, the, yeah. this is their tragedy and their blessing at yeah. the same time. So yeah. they're, they're the good people, the beautiful people, the shining mm. people, but they're really but, tragic figures. Yeah, or they're not blessed. They're, they're not fully kind of creatures of God in that sense. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. And then, of course, there's this other idea that we're demons... Yeah. With an A, yes. D A E becomes demons with an E, yes. And all these spirits of the air who were neutral, or spirits mm. who were neutral, yeah. suddenly developed this demonic. demonic. Quality. They were yeah. demonic, but they sort of, <laughs> whereas they were spirits and yeah. neither good nor bad, and messengers of God. Yeah, in fact, yeah. they suddenly become evil creatures. Exactly, yeah. And that's where you get really odd terminology. Like there's there's a lot of the glosses where they're talking about you. You come across it sometimes in relation to the Morrigan or or the Bive that uh, they call them Uatha, which is horrors, but they gloss it sometimes Goo Devon, which means a false, false demon. demon. Which I think is possibly this sort of like, well, they're not devils yeah, they're from neutral. hell as we think of it. There's these neutral characters who we don't understand, but it's probably better not to talk to them. Yeah, exactly. So so the, it's quite ambivalent, um, but it's also, it's a quite a deliberate kind of, attempt yeah. to interweave two completely distinct traditions yeah. and so that is the the backdrop to a text like Levergavala and then the Levergavala itself um, provided a lot of you know later yeah. material and it is interesting that the Tour de Donnan become your fallen angels mm. who, and then well, I suppose their enemies have to become devils monsters yeah it's really interesting but there's lots of other ideas about the former yeah. I mean look it could be A the men of Lachlan <laughs> uh -huh. B from under the sea, C from Africa, <laughs> four a D, <laughs> all of the above or none of the above. Yeah, I mean take it or leave it. I mean the men of Lachlan really you find them more in the Fenian. You do rather, but it it fits in in a historical sense with our text in so far as uh, Lachlan is one of one of one the of terms the for well. Scandinavia for the Norsemen, um, but then it also is just means from elsewhere from over the sea. Um, so it could have been the fact that these were being committed to writing around the time of the Viking invasions yeah. or incursions. Incur so. Yeah, absolutely. So that that would have suggested definitely the the, the influence of the Scandinavians. There yeah. is definitely. Oh, and there is. We'll, we'll come to you later when we talk about Balor, as yeah. I hope we will. But there is in one of the stories a story about how he uh, suggests to his. Uh, people that why don't we get a hold of Ireland and uh, tie ropes to it and take it back to the frozen north yeah tow it northward most of us would want to tow it southwards <laughs> but, uh, but I really want to deal with that later but yeah. I think we'll look at that much more when we come to talk oh, about Luke it's a great story yeah yeah lots of stuff but um, so from under the sea, that, that's more interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and it's more literal. That the, the name of the people is Fovera, and the best etymology we can come up uh, with for that is Fovera, which is under, under the, the sea. sea. Well, then there's Tethra. Yes, Tethra, which in poetry is sometimes synonymous with the sea. And there's this wonderful phrase in Duan Avergan, the the Song of Avergan, about the cattle of Tethra, Tethra yeah. which is you know the fish, the fishful plentiful sea, the fishful fishful sea. Yeah, yeah. And of course, later on in the story, the, the dog that goes down under the sea to get back the harp, doesn't he? I no, it's not specified as being under the sea there, yeah. but uh, again, they're often associated with being uh, in islands around the land yeah, of Ireland. Yeah. They they definitely have this 
they're seafarers, if nothing else. You know? Yeah, yeah. So there is some. It's, it's a little bit more realistic to say they're of the sea. Of the sea. That, yeah. that you can't. But from Africa. Uh, I think that's a bit <laughs> like uh, we were talking earlier when we were talking about Ethlu, in mm. fact, and the Saint Ethna, who would only drink milk from a cow that had come from the great Christian holy land of India. It's just a long way away. Yeah, over or again, there. Yeah. Um, the King of Spain's daughter came yeah. to visit me, and then uh, you know, in the, in the My Little Nut Tree nursery rhyme, we always talk about Spain. Yeah, Spain is again another again, word for far away. Far away can be otherness. synonymous with otherness, yeah. even other worlds. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just from somewhere else. Yeah. So let's look at whether they're in or out or above or under or somewhere around Ireland. They seem to be already there in, in our text. Yeah, there's no tale, no telling in our text that the the Fovera had come from some other place. In fact, at the beginning of our text, it's the two a day who have come from mm. some other place. In later tradition, when we're looking at the Levacavola, um, even then, the Fovera have been around since the, the time of Partholone, who was supposed to be the Partholone second. Never, they're, they're the yeah. Fovera are always, always there. there. And I think, isn't that where most of the, the their monstrous... Yes, from, from that Levacavola. Which, uh, when they meet Partholone on Nevered. Which can be a little bit confusing, because a lot of people talk about those other invasions of Kessar and Partholone and Nevered as earlier than the story of the two of the Danon coming to Ireland. They're kind of they're prequels that were written after the fact. Yeah, in many yeah, ways, it's yeah. a bit like Star Wars 1, 2 and 3, which came <laughs> out after 4, 5 and 6. So, you know, think of the second battle as 4, 5 and 6. Uh, and no, no, no. The level of all is 1, 2 and 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'll be asking you next, is who judge our binks and I'll probably oh, run God. away screaming. <laughs> Definitely as evil as Balor, no doubt about it. <laughs> evil at the world monster. <laughs> yeah. But it seems that, that what's interesting, because we're looking at, the, certainly in this text, mm. they are not ugly, except no. for Balor, who is a, a bit of an exception anyway. He is. He is an outsider and seems to come from a different source anyway. Yeah. But we'll be dealing with that another time. Yes. We haven't got time to deal with it now. But what it looks like is that, that they're not others or different they're just a different family it's like two families having an argument absolutely and especially when you start looking at their family names they're, they're close kin yeah i think that elatha is in fact also mcdelvoy yeah got He's the same ancestor same ancestor as eru yeah i mean it's described as father yeah but, but it seems that they're more so many of them have this yeah, father who isn't in the story. You can drive yourself a bit mad trying to draw out a family tree of the two of the Danon and or the uh, Fomorians. Oh yeah, you can tie yourself up in dreadful knots. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was looking at um, some notes in the uh, Love of Gravola. Oh yes, um, and it talked about you know all these problems of pseudo historical genealogies. Only, what was it they? Would it be yeah, pseudo traditional oh. artificiality? <laughs> In other words, they also described that the genealogies are impossible. Exactly. So yeah. give up. But exactly. And and I think they are more just an indication that there is a relationship. It's a bit like how in um, in Shakespeare, people call each other cuz or cousin mm -hmm. to indicate that they're part of the same family group. It doesn't mean that they're literal first yeah, or second cousin. Exactly. Yeah. You can't think of them in those family familial terms just more they come from the same source and there are other names aren't there they they there's so many who have the same sort of surnames like delvoith yeah delvoith is a well, big i call one. them surnames family names yes and um and, and stated ancestry as well like the, in Dirk. 
Yeah, and well, in there is Marte Dovnan, and I think that that's again a little play on De Dan and De Dovnan. You know that they're, they're almost the same, but not quite. Um, also, again, if if you if you track back. Uh, these sort of ancestral figures. One of the big ones would be Naid. Yeah. Um, Balor is described as Ian Naid. Um, but we had, when we were talking about those early sections yeah. uh, last time, we also had Ezlo, who was also part of the Ian Naid. So, you know, the, these are really very close relatives of yeah. one another. And uh, it, it's just that they can't be uh, just other world enemies. Yeah, and they, they certainly can't be, you know this completely distinct and foreign group. Um, you know, there, there are comments, I think Jared Murphy made a comment about how, you know, the, the Fovera always seemed quite vague. And um, I, I don't think we, we can I couldn't agree go along with, with that. that. They're only vague if you imagine that they must be utterly different from the Dedanon. And if you imagine that they must be these sort of figures of evil and disruption mm. for an eternal battle between these divinities. Yeah, it's, it it's, doesn't come across like that, does no, it? No, that's not how it is. You know, and if, if you stop trying to make it that... If you stop trying to make them into divinities yeah. and look at it as a good story... Yeah, about peoples. People arguing yeah. and having tremendous... Bit of a family rift, you know. With a bit of magic thrown in. Yeah. Then like you always have it's it, no it is it also gets much more fun much more exciting and far more cinematic cinematic, cinematic. <laughs> and interesting yeah, yeah. okay and there was one other thing that possibly isn't um that, that something i noticed when you when you go towards moitura yes. the real battle site you know the the air, real area you have to go through an area called the brick leaves yes. which is an area with this wonderful cairn complex on the top of a lot of really beautiful looking hills it is stunning but as you go along the road towards Moitura there suddenly over the top of the hills you see appearing these bald grey one-eyed heads uh, like the sort of eye of the you know the one-eyed giant giants <laughs> looking over the hills, which, of course, the cairns on the top of the hills. Yeah. And it struck me that the, certainly the Iron Age peoples who were terribly, particularly in Ireland, were terribly nostalgic. Oh, yeah. I mean, building places like Navan Fort. Oh, yes. Where they build this incredible place, divide it up, roundhouse, then set fire to it and bury it. Or yeah. the, the road, the wonderful road, Corley, which only lasted 10 years. Yeah. There is this sense of nostalgic, and nostalgia rather. And mm. as they look around the landscape at all these strange, weird items, the cairns mm. and the hills and the... Which um, were just as mysterious. monuments. If not more mysterious to an Iron Age people than they are to us now. Because, of course, they predate them a couple of thousand years. They're just as weird and strange and apparently magical. Yeah, as we would look at something that was built by the Romans or Greeks yes. and go, you know... How did they do it? How what was it for? Or, or, yeah, pyramids. Oh, they couldn't possibly do oh, that. Oh, yes, yes. Nobody <laughs> could do that. It must be magic. Yeah, yeah. The fact that I was reading Barbara Mertz the other day, and she said, well, anyone could build a pyramid if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but it's just this, it's other ways of looking at stories yes. that, that uh, it came across that there the, were the femora on the hilltops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you don't take it, it, it does it matter? It's just a way of looking at story other than the classical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and other than as, you know, these abstract deities who are constantly warring you know when when you kind of bring it a bit more to a human level you walk along the road and look 
there's Balor yeah. up on the hill and he's looking at you. <laughs> yeah, it was the same same way that you might see dragons and clouds and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And yet it's a way of telling a story. Mm. And there it is in the landscape. So although that's just an observation, mm. it, it certainly makes me think. So we know nothing more of Bresh, really, until he's adult. Although he is mentioned throughout the Nichenicus, isn't he? And frequently he is. praised. Yeah, in a good few poems, including um, on the story of Carvan and on Carney Nate. And he's it's, he's more sympathetic character in those. Yeah, and yet he's... It doesn't always work out that way. I mean, we seem to see Bresh... Yeah, he's usually held up as something of a counterexample of kingship, and particularly when he's com- in comparison to Lou, who is, you know, uh, usually seen as the hero. Yeah, and yet uh, there's Bresh being referred to in the Dinshalicus as the flower of his people. Exactly, so there's something more to the story, something I think. Something going on. So we yeah. need to look at the reign of Bresh. Yes. Bresh becomes king, and when we say king, I mean obviously it's a king of his, to a, his tribe. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's a local king. But is he? I'll give you another one on my multiple choice list. <laughs> is he a the best of a bad job? B a straw man? Or C merely set up by both sides? Or possibly all of the above? Yeah, I think probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in terms of the kingship, there were different grades of king. And I think this can be confusing for some people trying to look at the stories where they imagine that, you know, Bresh would be king of all of Ireland. It's much more likely that he was a re of a tuath, which is the smallest kind of political unit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's thought that between the 5th and 9th century there might have been 150 tuatha over the whole island. Yeah. Regional leader. Yeah, and so you're talking about 3,000 people. Of yeah, well, more like more like <laughs> a mayor, yeah, more like mayor. the mayor, yeah. you know. And so um, they would have been beholden to sort of higher authorities. There were, were at least three different grades. You had the re of the single tuath, then you had a re tuatha, which or a re bwytham, uh, which is a king over several tuaths, mm. and then you had the the an even higher level of king, who was a king of the whole province. Mm. So, and they didn't exactly set laws, but they did certainly set taxes and tributes and and also yeah. then were responsible for collecting them. And of them. course here it mentions that he has to give guarantors. Yes, and this is part of the again, the very complex legal social system. Um, you There was always had to be a way in which someone could make recompense for their wrongdoing and the exact nature of that recompense uh, was determined by their status. Now, the king or the re has got the highest status in the tooth, so mm-hmm. no one can really, you know, make a complaint against him. Um, so, in order to offset that, because they did realise that, you know, kings you were not infallible by any means, so to offset that, there's a couple of things. First of all, there's the um, Athak Fothla which kind of means the churl or the peasant mm-hmm. of substitution, so that there was someone you know, presumably picked by lottery or some other dreadful system who would take the punishments that were due to a bad yeah, king. That's a bit tough, isn't it? It is. But then also between tribes, particularly between Tuatha, um, where there would often be, you know, various treaties and so on be made between Tuatha and alliances and all the rest of it, like the alliance between the Dedanon and the Fovera, uh, in order to ensure that that's kept to, each side will give the other sureties or hostages mm-hmm. or guarantors. Mm-hmm. And it means that basically, you know, it's Swapping a way of people. saying, I will keep your people safe as a, you know, a way as to keep friends. the whole yeah, treaty safe. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that, again, is telling us something about 
um, brushes starters and I can go into this in more detail in an article it's it's it gets a bit interesting but yeah, complicated yeah. yeah and of course eventually they give the, the they do give the kingship to their adopted well, as she said it didn't mean adopted son yeah this is uh, again one of Elizabeth Gray's translations that I would disagree with um you know the vast majority we are taking from Elizabeth Gray but this is one where um she has translated um Gordmark as uh, adopted son mm-hmm. but actually that's Gor which we were talking about last week in terms of Gorias it means warmth and spe- family affection specifically when it's got like a family relationship Mok Gura is a dutiful, dutiful. son so he's yeah. the dutiful son yeah, so he seems to fulfil all the proper traditions he does all the, the, you know all the not traditions. He fills all the conditions, is what I was exactly. Saying. And uh, in fact, in the text Jagaska Kormuk, which is the teachings or the wisdom of Kormuk, there is in fact a nice little list of what you need in order to be a king. Kormuk uh, is asked, you know, by what is kingship taken? You know, how he's always you... being asked. Kormak want to be a good king. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you get to be king? In fact, that's all about Kormak is all about being a good king. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another story. Yeah, absolutely. Scalea. So what he says is not hard to answer, of course, by virtue of shape and race and knowledge through wisdom and rank and liberality and honesty, by virtue of hereditary right and eloquence, by the strength of fighting and an army is it taken. <laughs> yeah, an army does come in useful. Yeah, well, it, but the, you also have to be good looking. I hear the first thing on the list. Yeah, is the you first have to be... thing on the list is you have to be good looking, and you know this whole. Well, yeah, but more than that, you know, <coughs> in fact, in um, last year, twenty eleven's edition of Eru, I think it was last year. I can't remember. In the last couple of years, anyway, Damien McManus has an article about uh, entitled "Good Looking and Irresistible" about <laughs> the heroes throughout Irish uh, folklore. They have to be good looking. Absolutely, yeah, and you know that that was very important. And interesting enough, you always get the impression that it's an elective kingship, and yet hereditary. There yeah. is a hereditary condition that you is. mentioned earlier. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, you do have to be from the right family and the right mm. background, which is where Bresh's ring that he got from Elitha comes into it. It also says in Chagasuka Cormac that it is Gesh for a blemished king to rule at Tara. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's something else that gives us, you know, supports really Bresh's right to kingship in our story. Yeah, yeah. And how does he get chosen then? Well, it's this curious statement um, about how there was contention between the two a day and their women over who should be king after Nuada. And so they uh, choose the good-looking one. It's the women who choose Bresh to be their new king. Now, I kind of wonder, is this supposed to be a good thing or a bad thing? Throughout the text, there's these little insertions every now and then. Whenever something is done falsely or wrongly or badly or has bad consequences, there's this little authorial voice coming in saying, and that's because of the maternal kin. You keep finding this term moistra all the time. I think that might have been a specific concern of our compiler, of the author of this tale. Yeah, the commentator. Yeah, yeah and that it also might have been part of, you know, social change at the time. You know, that there was this constant kind of reinforcement. No, you have to have allegiance to your father's kin. You know, no, the mother is not important and don't listen to what women well, have to say. Well, around the 11th, was it 11th century? Well, between the sort of 9th and 12th yeah, centuries, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so... It's a sort of Norman idea, though. It's yeah. specifically Norman here. Yeah, but, you know... Um, it's it's so there is a her- heredity not necessarily directly to the eldest son, 
and uh, wasn't it of course priests could still have wives and oh yeah you know was it and about eleven twenty wasn't it yeah it's very late that? that's yeah. very late yeah yeah so but it, it's it's I think it might be responding to something that was current when mm. our text was created I don't think it's integral to the story and it's not just that that's what comes when you choose someone who's good looking no it's not or about just, the good just choosing yeah. who's good looking it's not that is no, it no no it's not no yeah. so what you get what I'm getting the picture of is a client king on Death of Mora yes you know because after all you've got Indek you've got Elitha you've got Tethra yes. they're present and they're imposing taxes when the story begins yes and so it seems that it, again his main job then is to collect the taxes. tribute yeah he's not setting the tribute what he has to do is over his particular area of responsibility he has to collect enough oh, tribute he has to be to, a tax collector yeah to pay his overlords it's kind of tough it so, is you can see how things go wrong. I mean, in the story, why things go wrong is because he puts people, he puts inappropriate people to inappropriate work. Yeah. He imposes, or because of him, there is hunger and hardship. Mm. And then two really heinous crimes. Oh, yeah. He gives false judgments yeah. and breaks the rules of hospitality. And the last two are disaster. Those are the biggies. Those are absolutely, again, it's uh, all over the law texts and other saga texts that uh, a king loses his honour price if he endures satire. Now, in that context satire is a legal process this is mm-hmm. satire which is we're going to come to satire we are going minute. to come to satire so yeah. you know but that means that the king just loses his status yeah. utterly yeah. utterly well let's go through those i mean how the warriors well the warriors are reduced to serving him yes and they're mentioned by name aren't they there's ogma who in ogma. one text is his brother yeah but he, he's so he, that's again could be a same yeah, same ancestors. general group yeah exactly uh what does he do with Ogma? He makes him collect firewood. Makes him collect firewood. And Ogma is usually termed the champion, the trainer, strongman of the two a day. And yeah, he's set off to collect firewood from Clue Bay. And, but because he's so weak with hunger, two thirds of his firewood gets swept away by the time he gets it onto the mainland. And then there's the doctor is building ramparts. Although yes. I always get the feeling that he's freely offered to work on Precious Fort, but this isn't enough. Well... It's the the problem happens um, when the Dagda, again, isn't getting enough to eat. And this is the next little episode that we will cover, which concerns Creasonvale, who is described as a satirist, but importantly, a cointer. And coin is illegal satire. And then there's this big thing, though, about the fact that he's the biggest thing that was uh, they go on about is that he didn't give them any entertainment. Oh, yeah. There's a lovely description, I think, in in the text there, which uh, says, basically, all the things Bresh was failing to do. Oh, yeah, I really like this. There was great murmuring against him among his paternal kinsmen, for their knives were not greased by him. However frequently they might come, their breaths did not smell of ale, and they did not see their poets, nor their bards, nor their satirists, nor their harpers, nor their pipers, nor their hornblowers, nor their jugglers, nor their fools entertaining them in the households. They did not go to contests of those preeminent in the arts, nor did they see their warriors proving their skill at arms before the king, except for one man, Ogma, son of Aedine. 
But it's just all that, the fact that it mm. actually lists. Yeah. But they don't get to see their harpers mm. or their satirists, satirists or their pipers. So in other words, he didn't provide with any entertainment and that was about the worst thing he could do. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, there's a wonderful list in one of the texts about the, the things that a king should do on each way of the uh, each day of the week. You know, one day is, is especially for watching hounds hunting. Another day is for... Like butlers, Yeah, it? another day <laughs> is for sexual union. Buttons. Monday is for drinking <laughs> ale. You know, and oh, these no, are the, is this going on in a hall tonight? Oh, <laughs> we've got pipers tonight. I'm yeah. definitely going tonight. I think I'll stay away tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just the hornblowers. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And oh, I keep going. Got the satirist in. You've seen that last satirist? He's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this was, you know, yeah, the great flaw. You know, he's not supporting the arts. And then you get the bit where the Dagda gets really pissed off. He's had enough. Yes. Weak with hunger, he's not putting up with it anymore. And there's a great story, isn't there? It is. It's, it's a lovely little episode. It's oft quoted as well. Um, that while the Dagda is doing all of this earth building and so on, that essentially there is Creasonvale, who's described as a satirist, um, who's always kind of hanging around when the Dagda is trying to eat his dinner in privacy. And what Creasonvale does is he threatens to satirise the Dagda. Which is you said, I think you ought to say a little bit about what satire actually is. We've yeah. talked about this word so many times. Exactly. We are not just talking about Dara Brian or, you know. <laughs> well, it's in some senses, maybe we are, because there's art, which is this legal satire, which is the way that a poet can get recompense for a wrong that's done to him. So, whereas a, a farmer can distrain uh, someone's cattle if they've wronged him, you know, and so he, he goes and takes some of their cattle and says, you have to sort this out, otherwise you're not getting the cattle back. Poet doesn't have cattle, so he can't do that. So what he does is he says, look, if you don't sort this out, I'm going to make a satire against you. I'm going to say you. something really rude about you. Well, I'm going to make a satire. Yeah, but, you know, satire is more, something more specific, isn't it? It is, it is. And again, you get the sort of the extremity, the absolute worst kind is the golden deacon, which will raise up welts on somebody's face. But the thing is, with illegal satire like this, you can't do it without giving the person a chance to make reparation for the mm. wrong you know so it's part of a legal procedure and then there's kointe which is an illegal satire and that's just saying bad things about someone else that's, that's just like a, slander like, yeah, yeah. that's slander so it's the difference between if you like um investigative journalism and gossip columns right so are you saying that Creepenvale is Creepenvale is a gossip columnist he's he's an illegal satirist illegal so yeah. he's threatening to uh, badmouth the, the Dagda unless the Dagda gives him the two thirds of the two best bits of his meal and he's already, already weak with hunger well this is what is causing yeah. him hunger is that he only gets one third and it's the worst third of that of his dinner because he has to give the rest to Creedenvale and yeah he does get really pissed off um, and so he calls for assistance from his son from Oengasog and this is the only time we meet it's the only Oengasog time he's mentioned in this whole in saga this story, isn't it? yeah and yet he's very much he's very him and the Dagda are you know, very important figures mm -hmm. throughout yeah. other mythological tales. And we'll come to that a lot later. Yeah. Well. Um, so he asks Oingus for advice, and Oingus's advice is to the next night to put two big lumps of gold into the two into two bits of his meal, and then when Creedenvale asks him for the two best bits, um, then these are the bits he'll get. So he'll eat those two portions with their gold, and the gold will kill him. 
-hmm. Now, the doctor does all of this, and uh, it's a bit of repetition, so I'll just move to the present tense. Creedenvale eats the gold, Creedenvale dies. The Dagda is accused of murder. Which seems logical. Exactly, yes. You know, the Dagda's here, you've you've poisoned someone, therefore, you know, you are going to have to pay a very serious fine for the life of this satirist. Not the death penalty, that wasn't usual. Unless you had a bit of an unjust king. So it was brought before Bresh as the retooth, and um, he judged that it was murder. He judged that the Dagda had, had to killed pay the fine. I mean, Creedenbe we that the yeah. proper. Exactly, yeah. So, but then the Dagda says, no, I did not kill him. He basically, Creedenvale did it to himself. He asked for the two best bits. I gave him the best bits. They had gold in them. He ate the gold all by himself. Mm -hmm. And if you open up his stomach, this will be proven. And so the Dagda's proven right. And most importantly, Bresh has made a false judgment. So he's been tricked into making a false judgment. Yeah. Which is the last part of the, that, 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 the four conditions. Exactly. It's a false judgment. This is, you know, you can't survive this false judgment. Is that There's a lot made of what's known as fear flatha, which is, if you like, the truth of nobility. And what yeah. that means is that when you're in that position, you really have to speak the truth, otherwise you can't hold that position. Yeah, it's it's absolutely basic, isn't it? Yeah, the false it's central. judgment yeah. is, uh, you know, I mean, this is where Cormac again, yes. he's praised for being a king yeah. who gave good judgments even while a child. You yes, know, yeah, some of his judgments, he's famous for his judgments. And he's often referred to as the Irish Solomon, yeah, yeah. you know, for because of that wisdom. And it is so, so important. Yeah. But the refusal to give entertainment yeah. And the ref and the bad judgments yeah. is just the last straw. Yeah. Well, nearly. <laughs> yeah. It's true. not quite the last straw. Mind you, they're, they're just to break in for a bit. Yes. There is an alternate trick that we ought to mention here. Absolutely. And this is from our good friend, the Metrical Dinhenkus. Yeah. Now, I found a version there where it's a bit sympathetic to Bresh. In fact, that's the one that starts by calling him the flower of his people. Yes. And it's a really strange story. So it's almost if you hold that thought about the Dagda and Creamville. Yeah. And Bresh and the bad judgment, false judgment. because false judgment, yeah. because this is a really odd story. Yeah, but it has relevance to Bresh. Absolutely, it has relevance to our story, and it, it is almost like a bit of looking at it from the other side. Okay, and um, it's the poem on Karn in Nades, which is the cairn of the grandson or descendants of Nades. Um, now, usually Enaid means Balor, but in this poem, it's referring to Bresh. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, Bresh is called the flower of his people. And he's absolutely beautiful and brilliant. And, yes. And uh, he would do, you know, generous and all mm. the things that... All those good exactly things that a king should be or the leader should what be. what he doesn't seem to be. Yeah. And, um, but it's clear that he has to collect tribute for a tyrant or tyrants, for, mm -hmm. for over kings. Um, and it seems that there's this completely unfair tribute in that Disproportion, area. Disproportion, isn't it? A hundred drinks from each household. Yeah. Three hundred cattle. Yeah, have to be brought, brought as tribute. To the taxing place. Yeah, so there's this completely disproportionate tribute that needs to be paid to the overking, who in this version is called um, Nechton. Which... And the cattle also have to be branded, don't they? Yeah, this is it. The three hundred cattle have to be taken to this special, you know, taxing place or enumerating place. And then they, they have been blackened 
by the smoke of these fires that basically the, the overkings are taking possession. Right. It's the old thing, when you wanted to possess, you, you should label your you know, cows. Yeah. Well, that's what used to be done with Bealtaine, yeah. with the driving the cattle through the two fires. Yeah, exactly. Which was a way of marking them. Yeah, yeah. And so, it seems to have go back this far. Absolutely, absolutely. So Bresch has to count the cattle and he has to oversee this brand, branding and blackening. But the the Tua de Danon, the subject people, uh, don't like this. And so Wiley Lou comes up with a trick in order to get their own back. And instead of sending 300 cattle, um, they make up 300 cow-shaped sort of wooden constructions. Yeah. yeah, sort of sticks. And, and I'm, I'm currently thinking about the wonderful horse puppets from the War Horse uh, yeah, but it's sort of stage three show. Cow f- Cow frames. frames, yeah. And uh, instead of udders, they hang a bucket <laughs> where you would expect u- udders to be. And into these buckets, they put this horrendous poisonous red bog water. It's called red bog water, yeah. 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 And they bring these to the um, the counting place. And so Bresh is counting them. It's an odd thing here. You have, it's Gesh comes in. Gesh comes in. He's under Gesh not to refuse something that is offered to him. And so... Lou and the two a day offer him to uh, drinks from this these buckets of red bog water and Bresh has to drink and so they keep on making him drink until he dies from the poison mm-hmm. and so this is a way for the two a day not to pay their tribute and Bresh is kind of caught in the middle of it mm. in this you know he's trying to collect the tribute for his masters but he dies in the process because he's caught between and it's his honesty yeah that causes his death is. which is so completely different and yet it's it must be a related story yeah it's it's very like the trick that the doctor plays on creeping which we get back to now exactly i hope sorry if this sounds complicated but it just seemed a pity not to bring this in i think this is really important as an extra source for understanding what Bresh is about such a different view it is but of course when um you know when the doctor then goes to Bresch, having been proved right. Yes. And Bresch proved wrong. Yeah. He then goes and asks Bresch for payment for the work he's done. Yes. And uh, he's been advised by Oingus that he should just ask for the lively black heifer from the herds. And I think that this, there's a slight indication here, this black heifer does resonate a bit with the, the cows that the are blackened, blackened cows. With, with branding from the poem. From the smoke. Yeah, and this black calf that the doctor thinks gets. he's crazy. Yeah, exactly. He thinks, well, I thought, you could have asked for anything. You could have asked for so much more because you were proven right and I was proven wrong, basically. You could have asked me for anything, but all you want is this black heifer? Fine. Now, this black heifer turns out to be the grass gallon. Yeah. Who yeah. is absolutely crucial and essential and we'll we'll learn more about her and and she'll come back and again. if you want to know more about her go, once again go back to go back to Ethlu. Ethlu. yeah and that's uh episode three episode three yes of mythical women oh, of course the cow is special because it just leads all the other cows exactly it? yes it's it's the means by which the two a day manage to reclaim their herds because they'll all follow this black calf the yeah calf so calf. the tribute all comes back exactly yeah so yeah. it's a way of kind of stealing back <laughs> what had been stolen from them. So that's it. He it's been a total setup. He's been forced into a, forced into a false judgment, and he can't be king anymore. Well, he still hasn't endured a legal satire. Just the illegal. Well, there's the well, dagger. The, exactly. Yeah. Creasonvale was threatening illegal satire, but the final and that was on dagger. Yeah, the final crunch for Brecht comes when Carbra Magadina, who is the poet of the mm-hmm. Dadanan 
again, goes to Brescia's house expecting to be given good hospitality and expected to, you know, be honoured and, and all the rest of it. Um, and so Carbra goes to Brescia's place and he's given a bit of a measly meal and he just feels uncomfortable. Um, but he manages to produce a legal satire. And he lays it on with a trial. On Brescia, yeah. And that you, you quoted that in your story about, yeah. you know, without food on a dish or shelter yeah. after dark. And because it's a legal satire, um, that means that because Bresch has presumably had warning yeah, that this yeah. will happen and doesn't manage to amend the situation and then the satire is made against him, you know... That's it. It's and I be... love the bit at the end where he says, in a, in a land where storytellers yeah. remain unpaid, yeah. <laughs> Bresch has no prosperity. Exactly. I do like that. I know, yeah. yeah. Yes. Trying to get paid is sometimes <laughs> difficult sometimes. But that's it. So he's blemished and that's it. Well, yeah, it's effectively his power or his authority is at, at an end. But he manages to wrangle another seven years in the kingship. Yeah, but at that point, he can't charge any tax. Exactly. He? He He's not allowed to collect any collect tribute. Taxes. And so that's his income. A bit like sort of Charles I and the rump and the lot, you know, and then Charles II, who refused to call Parliament for all those years and tried to get money from the French. You know, I'll you take your word rule for Rule without Parliament, you know, yeah. and uh, you can do it. But you can't raise taxes. Exactly, yeah. And that's a very difficult position to be in yeah. if you're a ruler. Yeah, now he wants, as, uh, yeah, as several English kings in uh, <laughs> about the time of the Civil War and just afterwards found out. Yeah. Um, but he wants that time to get some forces together, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, he asks for this sort of seven-year reprieve, this kind of interregnum. Um, and it says in the text that the, what he really wanted was to gather up an army. And this is the last bit of the requisition, or, you know, the requisites for being king, is that you have the force of arms in the army. And of course he hasn't got one, he has to go and get yeah, one. exactly. So he has to go and sort that out. Meanwhile, the Dedanon, who've said yes, who've agreed to this, they also want a bit of time to get their army together and, and yeah. work out their battle strategy. Yeah. So each of them is, is kind of now thinking ahead to a clash. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Lou, uh, Lou also gets a party from the Shia, the, the the fairy, you know, the other world as well. Like just like, um, what's his name? Bresh is trying to get forced from anywhere from the, the Shia, yeah. the other world. It's just like, whoa, anybody. Um, yeah, exactly. Everyone must musters up whatever gang they can bring together, and then they'll just go and scrap it out. Yeah. And it's it's interesting though the way that they both both these each heroes them do, yeah. each of them do exactly the it's same very parallel. So we'll see a bit more about that later. Yeah. But so this is where he goes to find his father's people. He's now fed up with his maternal king. Kin, yeah, they they have. Did I say king? Sorry, <laughs> that's alright. They yeah, they basically have now rejected him, and yes, so he goes to his mother to Aru to find yeah. out. You so know, where his he mother came from. gives him the ring, yes, and then tells him his father's king of the Fomora. Yeah, he goes whoopee. <laughs> And then they're both off to see the wizard. <laughs> you know, oh, they're going to go and find that we're off to see the Fomora. You the know? wonderful Fomora of Fomora. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just funny the way... You can imagine his mother going, well, actually, your yeah. father is, king is of the, the enemy. king of the enemy. And he's yeah. going, is this for real? <laughs> wow, let's go and ask him. Yes. Uh, the trouble is, it doesn't turn out to be such a good story, does it? No, it doesn't turn out so well for him in the end. Now, it's it's 
it's worth pointing out that uh, when he and his mother go off to to seek his father, that it doesn't say they grow go abroad. It doesn't they say they go enough to they come to a great place. Yeah, so it seems to me that you know this is just again the enemy camp, it, but it's still within the, the island go off of Ireland. The enemy camp. Yeah, and uh, then it's interesting because when he arrives. Mm. At the enemy camp, there's testing and competition and yeah, dog they... racing and sword play and all yeah. sorts of stuff, stuff like that. And he has to take part in all the games. Yeah, in order to show his his his, his worth. worth. And... A bit like when Luke comes to Tara. It is, yeah. Which we'll talk about next time. Exactly. But it's just again this balance. He yeah. has to earn his way into the camp. Yeah. Although I think the ring helps. The ring. Well, it's the ring at last that uh, during the sword play. Um, Elitha sees the ring glinting on his finger and he goes, wait, that is my son! Oh, no, that ring! <laughs> and you can imagine Eros yeah. going, hmm, yes. and you didn't recognise me. <laughs> Have I changed that yeah. much? <laughs> you just see her standing there yeah. and tapping of the toes. Oh, yeah, the folding of the arms. <laughs> Person of the wind. And then he's accepted. But uh, they're, they're, it's still a problem because he actually, what's interesting is he tells his, he's honest to his father. Absolutely. He tells the truth. He said, I made false judgments and uh, I, I lost it through my arrogance it and was, my yeah. pride. I lost the kingship or leadership. Yeah. So he, he does, again, there's no sense that he's trying to conceal his mistakes. And his father goes, hmm, that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. There is a sense of, you know, I'm terribly disappointed in you. Yeah, there is a bit of a you sense know, of that. All you this know. time, you finally turn up and look what you've turned out like. Yeah. You're a disappointment to me. Yeah, and then he says, "Well, gonna you know, but you're gonna help me get my leadership back, aren't you? You're mm. gonna come and fight, fight my enemies." And he goes, "Well, look, if you've lost your rule, yeah, your, your rule through injustice, yeah, another injustice won't get win it back. Exactly. Yeah, you can't take it by force. If you didn't, if it wasn't given to you willingly." You certainly won't get it by force. Which again is interesting, considering they're just about to fight a major battle. Exactly, yeah. But it's 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 the battle for the right reason. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it obviously comes from a different contention, and it's not going to be fought over a bad king. No, who both sides will consider to be a bad king. Yeah, yeah. Or a bad leader. Mm. He hasn't. He's lost his right to rule. He's blemished in the eyes of the Fomorian. Yep. He's, in the same way as he's blemished in the eyes of the, the Dadanan. Yeah. And that's again interesting. You certainly don't get this picture of evil monsters no, who are, trying who are to ravishing take over land, power, yeah. who are going, no, no, we can't win by. It has to be an equal battle. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I find that particularly interesting. Yeah. So that's really where his influence stops. Well, except for a twist in the tail. Yeah. So he fights on the side of the Fomor in the battle. Although he's not mentioned by name. You know, he doesn't sort yeah. of cover himself in glory. He's not responsible yeah, he's for killing, you know, important people. In fact... No, he's, he's no deeds of his at all. No. And uh, mind you, look, we're rushing on a bit because the mm. battle will be described in plenty of gory detail oh, when we yes. get there. Yes. Um, but he does survive. Yeah. And then comes the fascinating bits. Yes. Uh, he sues for surrender, effectively. Um, and he goes to Lou, who has the captaincy over the Dadanon, at the end of the battle, basically pleading for his life. And uh, It can't be very popular, really, can it? No. So there's kind of a negotiation, you know, about, well, what can I give you so that you won't kill me? <laughs> And the first thing that he well, no, the first thing that he offers is that he can make sure that the cattle of the Dadanon are always in milk, which is an odd thing to choose considering how under his reign everything's been. It was also lean, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, dearth of uh, a time of recession. Exactly, and yeah. Famine, um, but 
Lou doesn't immediately yay or nay this. He goes to consult with Abraham, with a judge, you know, to say, is this a good, are these good terms for surrender? And the judge decides no, that even if uh, Bresch can have power over cattle being in milk, he can't control their age. He can't control, you know, whether mm-hmm. a cow will then get too old to produce milk, can't control whether or not they'll be in calf. So it doesn't sort of work. No, so that's rejected. And the next thing that Bresch offers, he says, well, I can ensure that you have four harvests a year, you know, um, so that you can reap corn winter, spring, summer and autumn. Again, Lou consults with his Brahman, with his judge, and says, is this a good deal? And the answer to this is what I find terribly interesting, that actually, no, we don't want to have four harvests a year. We found this to be good enough for us, the spring for sow- for ploughing and sowing, the summer for the ripening of corn, the autumn for the harvest, mm-hmm. and the winter now, as Grace, Grace says, the winter for consuming it, but I think it could easily be the winter for grinding it. Mm-hmm. I think the the verb that's used there is melods, which can mean to grind as well as to chew or eat. So they say, no, actually, we have a rhythm of the seasons. But that's and good enough for us. That is good enough. Um, so Brush says, well, what can I give you then? And the answer is less than that. Yes, yeah, that's you. really odd. Lou says, ah, no, less than that yeah. saves you. Yeah, you're offering too much, almost. You're, you're offering us far too much. You need to just give us something small and significant. And this is where we get this wondrous little how shall we plow and plow and how shall we sow and how shall we reap? And what Bresh says is, well, on a Tuesday you should plow, and on a Tuesday you should sow, and on a Tuesday you should reap. And that saved him. And that was that was what saved him. Now a lot of commentators have said, you know, and people who've written about this have said, well, it just doesn't make this sense. This is obscure. It's obscure. Yeah. But interesting enough, there uh, uh, there's a lot of folklore in the west of Ireland, and I know you found in the a, west of Scotland, west particularly. Of, yeah. yeah the why, west, why did I say west of Ireland? I meant Western Ireland. Western Islands. Yes. The Western Isles of Scotland. Yeah. That there is actually a very strong folk tradition that refers to this. But the word for Tuesday in the text is Marth, which is still the modern Irish word for Tuesday, mm-hmm. they march. But that's not very helpful because that's simply a, a loan really from the Latin, you know, Mars, the day of Mars, mm-hmm. uh, Mardi. late. Yeah, which, which has got to be, you know, that's got to be post-Latin. We don't know what the original significance might have been, but we do have these bits of folklore from Scotland that also talk about Tuesdays. Yeah, and it's all sorts of um, folklore. Like um, a typical story is that an outsider comes and offers to help a farmer with his work on the farm. Particularly with the ploughing. Ploughing or or sowing or reaping. And then says, as my payment, it's almost like a trick, threatens to take too much. Yeah, basically they say, well, all I want for my payment is as much of the harvest as I can carry in this uh, rope, this withy. And so the farmer thinks, oh, well, that can't be too much. It's only as much as, you know, they can fit on their back. But a bit like, you know, Bridget and her cloak, this withy ends up being ridiculously large. And so it's the whole harvest. the whole harvest. Yeah, will all fit within this rope. So Mm. basically the farmer is now risking losing his entire harvest. Mm to this stranger who uh, gave assistance. And the way he gets around it in every version of the story is to say, you can't have it because I sewed on a Tuesday, 
I ploughed on a Tuesday and I reaped on a Tuesday, therefore it's not yours. And then the other world figure just disappears. Disappears, yeah. And there are various versions of this, but mm. they're all saved by the spell, yes. this incantation. Yeah. Uh, known as the tree, tree Mart. Tree Mart, yeah, the Three Tuesdays. I can't find, I can't think of any folklore that is similar to that in mm. the Irish folklore. Mm. What struck me was a, a very vague reference. There's a legend of Not Grafton, which is about uh, two hunchback brothers. Yes. And the first goes up to the fairy she, the, 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 the hill, yeah. and uh, he listens to the singing of the fairies, and they're singing Monday, Tuesday, or... They luende mart, they luende mart, and then he says very gently, also Wednesday. Yeah, and uh, but the second brother shouts, "What about Thursday and Friday?" Yeah. And he ends up with two hunchbacks. Yes, although I tell the story very differently. Yeah, and combine it with the story of the Till Silver Chanter, which is a Scottish story, so it's all about music. Yeah, but it's the same idea. Now I have no idea whether there's any connection with mm. this, but the the there have I have some memory, and I can't find it. Mm of uh, in the Irish Folklore Commission, Commission survey, mm. which is 1936, 1937. Mm. Now, it's hard. It's not really... It's very difficult to try and find a specific reference. That but way, in yeah. reading a lot of it from the Longford area, mm. I do remember something which referred to, obviously, it was very unlucky to get married on a Saturday. Which is now when everyone gets married, of course. <laughs> but it was considered to be very bad luck. Yeah. And I do remember a Monday or best of all, a Tuesday being mentioned yeah. as the, the most lucky day for marriages. Yeah. But I've never come across it specifically referencing farming, any farming practice. Yeah, yeah. But there's clearly, there's something in there that I, I don't think we can really get to the root of. But it is fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. And it's almost like there, there's a particular riddle or a password that by Bresh using this, by saying, oh yes, I know this, this is the riddle of the tree mart. And by saying it, it almost indicates he's worthy he's of being saved. Yeah. yeah, and he's, I almost got the feeling like he's offering, the, the he wanted to be this king who was the most beautiful, therefore yeah. the land had to be most beautiful. Yeah. And the most beautiful fine land, why? Surely it would always be summer. Yeah. And the cows would always be in milk. Mm. But he isn't that. No. But he can be saved by something that indicates that he's one of them. Yeah, yeah, that he knows that about he knows, rightness. And he knows the spirit the incantations, he knows the everyday things and sayings yeah. that belong to his mother's Those people. people. Yeah. I don't know, we're just guessing. Yeah. So if you, you in a way, Bresh, Bresh is a bit of a mystery. And yeah. if you sort of go through what we've learned about him, what, what little finds have we got? Mm. And it looks like he was set up by both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong person in the wrong place. Mm. Um, has his rights to the land. Oh, yeah. You know, that he, he has a right to be in, in this land. Um, now, the thing about the tree mart, for all we know, the compiler in the ninth century actually may not have talked about it because it was obvious. It was a well-known little exactly. spell, yeah. little incantation. That would immediately have meaning to the audience. This and is the problem, is that you don't write down what's bloody obvious. And although that one we don't know of, there mm. are plenty of others, little pishos, little, little spells. Snippets, yeah. Snippets, that, that, little prayers that have come down to be modern prayers yeah. that are still very well-known. Yeah. Um, and the interesting, the cows in milk, that thing about the 300 cows and drinking and how the red they died, is the red bog water. Yeah. It may have, I mean, for all, it's possible that Dinshanicus may contain a garbled version of something. Yeah, or at but, least an, a, another way of looking at it. So it may be that the, the whole business of cows and their milking has a special significance for Bresh. 
you know, that this is something that he has a special relationship to. I mean, this is to. pure speculation. It is. You know, these these are just the, the tiny little pottery fragments that are giving us an indication about what what might be the full yeah, item. What might be here. So there's one more thing. I mean, we know that there are characters who belong to the Irish stories at a much earlier level and yeah. Bresh seems to be one of them doesn't he? Yeah well He's certainly an indigenous character. Yeah for the characters such as Nuada and Lou and even Ogma there are cognates um, not just in the Welsh with whom we have an awful lot of shared Ogma, culture think, yeah. um, but certainly on the continent. Certainly with the continent yeah. you can find them as continental. Exactly continental Lou, names. Ogma, Nuada, yeah. and so exactly. we were talking about. Yeah so so those are ones that we know that we we share or have shiny foreigners yeah those are the shiny foreigners Bresh though we don't have an equivalent figure in those other tales and other traditions and the Dagda the Dagda is yeah he's just absolutely Irish and it seems that there is a major challenge between these two figures at the heart of this part of the story yeah I don't know we, we need to talk about that a yeah, bit more. that's something that we we may well be able to come back to once we've done a bit more digging in a few of the other sites. Yeah, we need to go a bit into deeper strata yeah. here. Yeah. So maybe Bresh has a point when he says it's not fair, it's not just. Yeah. But I reckon his father may have handed him a rough deal along with his name. Yeah. You have to feel sorry for him. You do rather, especially if we go back now to look at you know what did his his father say to his mother at at that time of his conception, and he said that every beautiful thing will be. Bresh. Now, Bresh can mean an uproar or a din. So in many ways, what he's saying is that this boy will grow up to be king and then everything, every beautiful thing will be an uproar. Right. So he's predicting actually a chaotic time. Uh, it's a nasty trick to play on him, isn't it? It is, rather, yeah. And you wonder you wonder how deliberate that was. Yeah, so maybe, you remember we were around, we were talking about, was it accident or design? Yeah, this meeting. And it seems almost as though Keon was given to Ethlin to, to cement a, an, alliance. A, an alliance. So it's like Eleha decides that the same thing's going to happen. Yes. So he wants a miraculous child of his own. So yeah. he comes and takes his own alliance. Yeah, to Eru. With Eru. Yeah. And it's almost, in that case, has he set him up yeah. to... To undermine the rule of the Dadanan. Yeah. To I'm... sort of put up this puppet king, this poor straw man, um, to, so that the Dadanan society will fall to pieces and then the Fomorians can come and take their share. <laughs> So you can say if Moitura represents an establishment of, of, of Mart, and I'm using the like, Egyptian, Egyptian sense, Mart, not rather than Mart. Yeah. The, the natural order, it's just yeah. such a useful word. It is. It's the only word I can think of that describes justice, natural order, the right way of doing things. Mm. It's just a useful word, even yeah. if it's not uh, part of this culture. But then, Well, what we'd say in, in Irish would be either core or kert would be that sense of that rightness. That's right. Yeah. It's more than just justice. It is, yeah. It means everything in its right place, yeah. and everything going fine, and yeah. uh, everything in order. Mm. Um, and I feel that Moitura, in some ways, is played out to establish to the order. Yeah, to re-establish, re-establish order. order. But, of course, you can't do that without tearing it all to bits first. Yeah, you have so to break it down first into chaos and then rebuild an order from yeah. it. Get the pecking order right yeah. again, settle the new rules. Yeah. Um, so poor old Bresh, he's, um, he's playing out the role he's been handed. Yeah, which is the role of overseeing the chaotic time, the disordered time. Every beautiful thing will, will be an uproar. Yeah. And of course, while he's 
in charge and in control. There is a dearth. You know, it might simply have been, if you think of it in human terms, that he was a leader in a time of recession or a time of famine. They never get remembered very well, do they? No, absolutely not. Whoever the poor guy is who has to take over after the crash has happened, he'll get blamed for We've all seen the badness. Quite a lot of this in the yeah, last few we years. have rather. So, I mean. It could have been in human terms that Bresch was the, the guy who took over when, yeah. in fact, it was a time of famine and leanness. And then he gets blamed for that leanness. And demonised for that, yeah. Yeah. So um, Bresch is the one who is in charge during this lean time of famine and this time of disorder and chaos. And there's, sort of, there's not enough food, there's not enough to eat. But when he's suing for surrender, he's offering too much. He's offering that cows will always be in milk and that there will be four harvests a year. That's not order either. That's no, it's still not. disorder. It's still not rightness. Yeah. And what the Dedanum want is rightness. They want natural order. Yes. So in terms of the chronology of the text as a whole, uh, if you've been reading along with us, um, you might have noticed that we've left out a few sections. Sections 33 to 35. Yeah, which uh, concern how Nuada got his flesh hand back. Um, and that's concerned with Dian Kecht, who is the great healer, and his children, Miach and Aravid. Now, we covered that story very thoroughly. Very thoroughly in episode four of Mythical Women about Aravid. But we'll also be coming back to them as part of when we look at the four great craftsmen of the Tuatha in a future podcast. But next time, we'll be going deeper and further into the story and meeting the exotic and very shiny Lula Fuller. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.